The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, you are the God. Take that one too. All right, let's pray. God, you are the God uh, who is simple, direct. Uh, you're clear with us and you're for us. You've committed yourself to us. You have said yes to us in creation. Yes to us in your birth. Yes to us in our baptism. Yes to us in our awakening this day. But we are of another kind, more accustomed to perhaps, maybe, we'll see, left in wonderment and ambiguity. We live our lives back not to your yes, but to our endless perhaps. So we pray for your mercy this day that we may live yes back to you. Yes with our time. Yes with our money. Yes with our energy. Yes with our strength and with our weakness. Yes to our neighbor. Yes and no longer perhaps. In the name of your enfleshed yes to us, even Jesus who is our yes into your future. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, that's what we want to talk about today. This is the final week of our Sermon on the Mount series. We want to talk about living a yes back to God, um, a, a, a concrete uh, and firm yes to the things that Jesus uh, has been proclaiming to us. Um, how many of you guys have ever uh, seen the movies or read the books, The Hunger Games? Some of you? Okay. So the Hunger Games are about, it's kind of this dystopian, post-apocalyptic future uh, where uh, the, the country is called Pan Am, which is kind of a, it's, it's North America now. And um, it's essentially, there's, this, there's a wealthy capital city that is, it's got tons of money, they're technologically advanced, uh, and they rule the other 12 districts, which are um, kept kind of in various states of poverty uh, and enslavement. And so the capital is, is rich, it's technologically advanced, um, and the, the protagonist of this story is someone named Katniss Everdeen, uh, who is part of District 12, and uh, she is uh, the protagonist of the story. She is um, uh, part of District 12, which is in Appalachia, uh, where people regularly die of starvation. And so um, it's, uh, it's kind of rough. It's kind of rough going for Katniss. Um, and uh, one of the other things about this story is that as punishment for a past rebellion, the capital in which like District 13 was supposedly destroyed, one boy and one girl from each district are chosen at random to compete in a pageant called the Hunger Games. Um, the games are televised, this televised event where the participants uh, are supposed to, they're called tributes, they're supposed to fight to the death a dark story, actually. They're supposed to fight to the death, and the winning tribute and his or her home district are rewarded with prizes and riches and, and different kinds of things like that. So uh, that's the story uh, of, of the Hunger Games. Katniss Everdeen, the protagonist of the story, um, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the books, you've had a long time to read them, so <laughs> not, if, you, if you are a child who's not yet allowed to read them, plug your ears, as my daughter is doing in the back. So... <clears throat> Good. All right. Now that we've got that taken care of. So Katniss competes in the Hunger Games, okay? Uh, the main protagonist of the story. And long story short, she ends up inciting a rebellion. I'll try to keep this quick so you guys can... But it, she ends up inciting a rebellion, and we discover at the end of book two that District 13 is actually still 
in existence. It's not, it's not been wiped out like the capital claims. Um, and so um, you find that out at the end of book two, and I was expecting book three to kind of be this Star Wars-like triumphant, now the rebels, they, ca- they rescue Katniss, and we're all going to be part of this great and glorious trip where the good guys are going to invade the capital and defeat the bad guys, right? That's what I was expecting in book three. Um, I feel a little bit mad at Suzanne Collins, who wrote this story, because I feel like she set me up for this, right? (laughs) Uh, Which she did. She did this on purpose. Um, But what happens is something completely different. Actually, long story short, what you find out is that District 13 is not any more righteous than the Capitol. There's nothing different about them. They're just trying to flip. They're trying to keep the same system of oppression in place. They're just trying to flip it so now they're the ones who are on top. And so when the rebels eventually overthrow the capital, they actually establish a new Hunger Games with the children of the leaders of the former capital, right? So it's just kind of this ugly ending where Katniss realizes nobody cares about me. Like nobody's actually, we're all just playing a power game here. It's super disappointing if you were expecting a Star Wars-like ending, um, but there's some important messages in it uh, probably for us. So I remember being disappointed that we didn't get this clean good guys versus bad guys storyline, which we're very attracted to. That's the reason Star Wars was such a big hit when it first came out in 1974. Seven, 1977. <laughs> One of the reasons it was such a big hit is that it just followed this simple story of the good guys defeating the bad guys. There was no ambiguity, there was no moral complexity, or anything like that. Um, and uh, so, but that wasn't the case, okay? So, you can unplug your ears if you've been plugging them. The spoiler is over, uh, in, uh, in, at least in the particulars. Um, a Russian novelist named Alexander Zolzhenitsyn. I had to look up how to pronounce his name. Uh, says this, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. If only that were the case. Uh, but the, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It's not good guys versus bad guys. It's right here. The line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. I don't know about you, but I feel this. I feel this desire to be the good guys, right? I I want to be on the right side of history. Uh, In these turbulent times, I feel like I have a lot at stake in sort of, uh, I want history to smile on the way that I handled this, right? Like I I want people to see that, oh, I was right about everything that's happening here. In the end, I was right. I was on the right team. I, I believe the right things about these current events. You know, I want people to eventually see that I was, I was right about these things. I called it before it happened. Um, I, I remember realizing one of the reasons I went into church planting is that I wanted to be part of the church that was believing and preaching and doing the right things, right? So it was part of that, part of that church planting thing, that impulse, part of that for me, it's not all there, but part of that for me is this desire to be on the right team, to be part of a church that's really doing that stuff that we're supposed to be doing, right? Um, the church that, you know, believes the right things about Jesus, that understands systemic racism and injustice and that, that sort of thing. And so it's really easy for me to see others as the bad guys and to see myself as one of the good guys because I believe about the right, I believe the right things and I post about them on social media. So <laughs> that's how you know. <laughs> Done. My work here is done. You know, something something crazy happens. You know, in the world, and I just 
I tweet, and then I get on with my day. My work is done, right? I'm one of the good guys, because look at what I said, right? Look at what I believe. But in a world where we think the good life can be found simply by being on the right team, believing the right things, being on the right side of history, we proclaim today the good news, that Jesus actually provides all of us an accessible pathway into a truly good life of love for God and others by becoming his disciples, entering the kingdom now by simply putting his teaching into practice. That's the good news we proclaim today. So we've been in this series. This is the Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Manifesto, the Constitution of the Kingdom. Jesus is declaring in this sermon, as we've seen, a new political arrangement for humans. That's what he's doing. He's saying there's a new way to organize yourself as a society. It's called the kingdom of God or eternal life or abundant life or doing the will of my Father in heaven. All those are the same thing in the scriptures. They're all the same thing. And so that's what he's been proclaiming, that there is a righteousness. This is happening now, by the way. This isn't all far off in the future. And if you, you, know, if you get on the right team, you can go to the good place when you die. No, it's, it's, it's happening right now. The kingdom of God is breaking in. This new political arrangement is here, and we can participate in it. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. And one of the key verses is five, chapter 5, verse 20. We've been talking about this, that your righteousness has to go beyond, has to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And what that means, as we've been looking at, is that it has to go beyond merely saying and believing the right things and externally performing the right actions. It has to go deeper than that into our hearts. It has to affect and touch our desires. We actually have to become filled with love if we're going to live in God's kingdom. Otherwise, we're just going to get tired of it, right? We're just going to get tired of trying to perform the right way and believe the right things if our hearts actually can't be transformed. And the good news is that they can be. We can actually be transformed as we submit our lives to the Lord. So um, that's what we've been talking about. That's the kind of righteousness that surpasses the surface level righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's what we've been looking at. That's what we are leaning into. And the rest of the sermon is Jesus basically saying, here's what that looks like. Here's what love lives like. Here's an illustration about how, you know, anger or, you know, or, or adultery or, and he gives all of these illustrations uh, that are basically saying, this is how you live this out. And then this last part of the sermon is interesting because he doesn't actually give us any new illustrations. He doesn't actually give us any new information, really, about the kingdom. He spends the last part of the sermon basically saying, just do it, right? <laughs> just, I, I imagine Shia LaBeouf, right, like flexing, <laughs> saying, just do it, right? Um, Maybe that's sacrilegious to imagine Jesus doing that, but... I always think of Shia and Jesus. Yeah, yeah, very similar people. The hair, it's the hair. Um, no, anyway, so Jesus, uh, Jesus isn't giving us anything new to, to, to think about. He's doing the same thing that Moses is doing in the reading we read from Deuteronomy, which is saying, look, I've set these things before you. Now, choose life. Practice the things that I have said are, will bring flourishing to you. I've said, here's how you have the good life. Now, please do it. Actually do it. So it, it seems as though Jesus was anticipating several ways of responding to his teaching. And one, I can imagine being a disciple and sort of being like, like, man, Jesus is sticking it to the Pharisees, right? He's calling them false prophets. Like this guy is, you know, he's cool. He's cool to hang out with. This is a, this kind of like feels clandestine. This feels cool. Being part of this group is where it's at, Right? 
And that is actually a way of avoiding putting into practice what Jesus is saying, is being content with coming to the next Sermon on the Mount, right? Come back next week for even more, shooting down the Pharisees, right? Like, there is a sense in which that it's easy for disciples to feel self-righteous about, yeah, I hang with Jesus. Me and Jesus, we hang out. I listen to his teaching. I think it's pretty great. I post about it on social media. <laughs> We're believing the right things. We're part of the right group, part of the right club. We have so many ways of avoiding just putting into practice what Jesus is saying. And I think Jesus was anticipating this, which is why he spends so much time. That was a long reading. And all he was saying is, just do it. Put my teaching into practice. That's basically what Jesus is saying. So he gives us these three metaphors uh, that encourage his disciples to just do it, put it into practice. He's saying, this isn't impossible. That's one of the ways theologians have avoided putting it into practice, is saying, oh, Jesus is really just giving us impossible things so that we trust in his grace. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, put it into practice. You have to do it to find out what it does for you, right? You have to put it into practice. So the first metaphor is two gates. And I want to read from uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of the New Testament, the message, because I think he gets at a lot of kind of what Jesus is doing here. So here's what, here's what the message says about this two, the, the two gates passage. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. That's what Jesus is saying here. Um, how many of you have ever been grocery shopping? Okay, there's a, more than read the Hunger Games. Actually, about the same number, that's weird. Um, anyway, uh, what, what do you do? When you load up your cart, maybe you go for a quick, you know, quick couple items, or maybe you're doing your weekly grocery shopping. You load up your cart, and then you get to the checkout line, and what are you scanning for? Candy. Candy, yeah, well. <clears throat> Yes, that's true. I am, I am scanning for candy. But what are, like, what are you trying to do when you get to the Shortest checkout line? The shortest line? Not celebrity magazines. No, Matt. Um, right. What are you looking for? You're looking for the shortest line. Does anybody, does anybody else do this where I'm kind of scanning to see if I can see some signals of competence in the cashiers? Yes. Right? I'm look, like, how quickly are they zipping those items through there? Or am I dealing with a slow person? Right? We're trying to get through, the goal there is to get through as quickly as possible, right? Like to try to just make this, get this over as quickly as possible. Reina, I know you're very fast at the top five. Nice. They actually do measure this. They do measure this in Reina's top five. So congratulations to Reina. Yeah, or self-checkout if that's going to be fastest, right? But what's the goal? We're, we're trying to move through this th thing as quickly as possible. We're trying to get this over with as quickly as possible. So that might be a great strategy for grocery shopping, but Jesus says it's not a good strategy for discipleship to try to do the minimum possible, to try to, to try to just get through this as quickly as possible. That's what he's comparing to this wide road. It's just, it's easy, it's obvious. Well, why wouldn't you take this road? And Jesus says you have to be careful because there's tons of people who say you can't. A lot of them have books in Christian bookstores. A lot of them do. And, but you can't, it won't lead to life. It leads to destruction. It seems obvious, it seems okay, but it doesn't lead to life. There's a narrow road. And by the way, the narrow road is not doctrinal correctness. It's not knowing, it's not believing the right things. That's not the narrow road. As we'll see, the narrow road is putting Jesus' teaching into practice. 
just really actually putting it into practice. That's the narrow road. So the, the thing here is that we have to actually enter this life. It's not something that happens to us automatically because we heard Jesus' teaching. We have to choose a road. That's the first metaphor. The second one is two prophets. So Jesus warns us about those who would mislead us to take this road, this wide road of external righteousness, believing the right things, performing the right actions, you're good. He calls those people who would encourage you to do that false prophets, fighting words, fighting words, especially for a Jew, right? Um, here's how Eugene Peterson puts this part. Be wary of false teachers who smile a lot, <laughs> dripping with practiced sincerity. Jeez. Chances are they are out to rip you off in one way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. I can see it now. The final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves look important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. Uh, Yep. <laughs> really, probably all I need to do is read Eugene Peterson's words. On this. It's a sermon. It's a sermon. The false prophets look good on the outside, but inwardly they're wolves, which means they want to use the sheep for their own purposes. So Jesus is warning us, hey, in your pursuit of discipleship, don't look for charisma, look for character. What's the fruit that comes out of their life? And by the way, fruit is not how many Twitter followers they have or how many books they sold or how many people go to their church. That's not fruit, not according to Jesus. Fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that what their life looks like? I've had the chance, I've read a lot of books and uh, I've been helped and blessed by a lot of authors. I've had the chance to meet some of these authors of books, and there couldn't be a bigger difference to me. When, once you meet somebody, you get to know them a little bit. The people that, if I ever say to you, like, oh, they're the real deal, like, this is what I mean. They live what they teach. They're humble. They're accessible. They're interested in other people besides themselves. I've met other authors who are not that way. And like Jesus says, I, I've stopped, once I realized that, I've said, well, they're not going to be a faithful, or they're not going to be a reliable guide for me into kingdom life. I need to trust people that are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Look for character, not charisma. This is essentially just, not just surface level righteousness like the Pharisees, right? But something has happened to them so that they're becoming a different kind of person. Dallas Willard, who is one of the real deals, by the way, uh, used to say that what God gets out of your life is the person you become. Not the accomplishments that you made. The person you become. And so look for people who are becoming the kind of person who looks like Jesus. Those are the ones who can really help you. By the way, this isn't given for kind of morbid self-introspection, like, am I a false prophet? It's not given for that purpose. I hope you don't think that, right? I hope nobody feels like they're a false prophet. You guys are good. You're fine. Um, but what he's saying is, 
there are people out there who will lead you in the wrong way. Be aware. Look for fruit. That's all he's saying. Because in a world where we think the good life can be found in simply being in the right team, believing the right things, being on the right side of history, we proclaim the good news, rather, that Jesus gives all of us an accessible pathway into a truly good life of love for God and others by becoming his disciples, entering the kingdom now by simply putting his teachings into practice. The final metaphor is two builders. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts this part. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, or tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. Just reading the Bible. <laughs> so here, here, in this, uh, here in this final metaphor, Jesus zooms out again to give us this picture of th this exhortation to wise living. There are two ways to live in this world. After you hear Jesus teaching, he's saying, there's only two options for you. There's not a perhaps we'll see, eh, I don't know. That's not an option. By default, you're saying, I'm going to build my house on the sand and just risk it. That's what you're saying. Once you've heard Jesus' words, you put them into practice or you don't. That's the option. And so there's this necessity that we see again, the foundation. What's the difference between the two houses in the picture? The only difference is the foundation, the thing that's hidden, but probably the most important part of the house. Things don't look very different until the storm hits and then you realize where you've been building, right? So that, that again points us to the heart is what matters. Our desire is being transformed in the love of God. There's a call here to put this into practice, not just to believe in Jesus, not just to affirm the goodness of Jesus' teachings. This is discipleship. James, in the reading that we read, says this as well. Don't just listen to the word. Put it into practice. Be doers of the word. Then you'll be blessed. Culture change experts say that nothing in a culture ever changes until somebody starts acting differently. And while we're not only going to want to focus on external actions, until the teachings of Jesus make their way into our bodies, we're not yet disciples of Jesus. Until we actually practice this stuff, we're not yet disciples. And that was the difference between the wise and foolish builders. They both heard the words of Jesus, but only one put them into practice. The final thing uh, about all of this is that... There's a Jesus-centeredness to all of this. You'll notice Jesus, during the sermon, he said, he said things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? And here at the end, he doesn't say, now, if you should put some general moral principles into your life, and then you'll have a better life, right? He doesn't say, obey God. He doesn't say, listen to the Torah. He doesn't say, listen to the philosophers. He says, listen to me. Listen to my words, and Jesus here is setting himself up as the final arbiter for the revelation of God. He's saying, my words are the words of God, and when you listen to me, you're listening to God. And so he's setting this up to basically say, these aren't general moral principles we are trying to incorporate into our lives. 
These are words that when we practice them, we actually come into divine union with God and He, through His presence, transforms us, really transforms us at the heart level into a certain kind of person. And so this isn't stuff that we're trying to apply to our lives. These are words that help us actually live with God as disciples, that the presence of Jesus is paramount here. And so, uh, as the Deuteronomy reading said, the Lord is your life. Ultimately, what we're going for here, a life of discipleship is a life of interactive union with God in Christ by the Spirit. It's not just moral codes, it's union. The overlap between heaven and earth is where we seek to live. That's located in Jesus, and now it's located in every practice of discipleship, that overlap of heaven and earth, this table is an overlap of heaven and earth. When we take the bread, drink the wine, we are communing with the presence of Christ. We are becoming the body of Christ. And that's part of this life of discipleship. Matt mentioned our DNA groups earlier. DNA groups are really how we, how we sort this out. It's really how we try to live this out. What does it look like for me in my life right now to be a disciple? Well, I need a community around me to help me notice what God's doing. And so what we do in those groups is essentially learn to detect where God is at work instead of just attending sporadic events where God seems to be present. Uh, we, we learn how to detect that in our whole lives and we discern together what lies am I believing? What idols am I bowing down to without even realizing it? And then what is the good news that God is proclaiming to me in this moment? And then how do I surrender to that good news? And that act of surrender is what Jesus says is putting his teaching into practice. That's doing the will of my Father. It's living responsively to what we recognize God is doing, the good news that he's proclaiming to us. So those acts of surrender can look like all kinds of things. Traditional spiritual disciplines, right? There's certain practices that are just good for us. The church has given us these practices to say, here's how you live an interactive life with God. Come to the table together with other believers. Listen to good news being proclaimed. Practice fasting. Practice silence and solitude. You're probably not going to go wrong unless you're just doing it on a surface level. Right? But if you're doing it to commune with God, to find his presence, those won't be wrong. Those acts of surrender are not righteousness in and of themselves, but they're practices that open us up to the transforming power of the Spirit. Jesus is basically just saying here, look, there's no other way to do this but to put it into practice, to give it a try. Start walking. That's the path. In a world where we think the good life can be found simply by being on the right team, believing the right things, being on the right side of history, we'll proclaim the good news today that Jesus provides all of us an accessible pathway into a truly good life of love for God and others by becoming his disciples, entering the kingdom now by simply putting his teachings into practice. So I wonder where that is for you. Where in your life have you not trusted Jesus? Where have you not put his teachings into practice? Where is that for you? For me, uh, I've been recognizing this week that uh, in my, when I'm under pressure, when I'm under stress, I like finding some calories, preferably sweet ones, to put in my body, or a glass of wine. I like those things, I like that too. Um, or some entertainment. 
And what I'm doing is I'm just, I'm trying to numb something, right, that's going on here, rather than inviting God into that space and saying, God, what's going on here? What is this pressure I'm feeling? What, what is the good news that you have for me? So I'm, that's one area for me. I'm, I'm just saying, hey, you know, to be honest, this is, this is where it is for me. And so for me, what that looks like, I think, uh, is that I, and I've felt this for a while, so this isn't necessarily on everybody, but I've felt this for a while, that I need to fast one day a week just from food, 24-hour fast one day a week. That's, that's my act of surrender. That's me saying, Lord, Lord I, I confess I have not trusted you in this area of my life. And I want to trust you in this area. I want to f- feel whatever these things are, these feelings that I don't want to feel, these uncomfortable feelings. I want to trust you enough to say, Lord, talk to me about this. Fasting is a good way to get in touch with that stuff for me. So that's one example of how I'm practicing the teachings of Jesus, how I'm seeking to put these things into practice in my life. What is it for you? What area of your life have you not trusted Jesus in? What, where do you feel him calling to you? Let's take a few moments in silence and then we'll pray together.